Hi, I'm Jennifer Palmieri, and welcome to Just Something About Her from The Recount and iHeartRadio. On this podcast, I talk to powerful women about how they made it to the top on their own terms. Here to help me introduce this week's guest is my producer, Sari Soffer. This week, we have Amanda Knox on the show, who you might remember was wrongfully convicted of murdering her then roommate abroad in Italy in 2007. Yeah, wrongfully convicted is the key word here. Yep. After four years in prison and eight years on trial, she was fully acquitted in 2015. But that's not what people typically remember. They remember the narrative that got morphed and distorted for mainstream consumption involving a sexual relationship with her roommate, branding her as Foxy Noxy, accusing her of orchestrating the whole thing. And coincidentally, or not, there's now a new movie out that echoes that version of the story. It's called Stillwater, starring Matt Damon, who plays the father figure of this American student locked up abroad. I'm trying to get my little girl out of jail. That's all I give a damn about. I mean, I had not heard about it until Amanda wrote this Twitter thread Mm -hmm. and just questioning how it is that people can continue to use her story without consulting her. Yeah, I mean, it's 2021. It's 2021. (laughs) It's the same story over and over again of women fighting to tell their own stories and instead unable to get past the caricature that's been created about them for public consumption. It just blows me away. So we're going to ask Amanda her reaction to this film, of course, who should be authorized to tell her story and how her situation fits into the larger conversation about women's agency and criminal justice reform. Yeah. And before we get into it, I want to note that there are some sensitive topics throughout the interview, including sexual assault, interrogation, and wrongful imprisonment. So if any of those are triggering, I would advise those listeners to stop here. And on that note, let's get to it. Amanda Knox, it is delightful to see you. Oh, thank you. You know, so the podcast is called Just Something About Her. And in my head, because I had worked for Hillary Clinton, I had her in my mind. You know, there's just something about her I don't like, I don't trust. But it could easily have been said about you. Oh, it has been said about me. (laughs) Yeah. There was just something about you that was different from how people expected Mm -hmm. a woman to behave that I think put us on this cataclysmic path. But Tell us your version of your story. Let's start with that. Sure. I was living abroad with a couple of other girls in a house, um, two Italian roommates and one British exchange student, Meredith Kircher. And one night, Meredith just happened to be home alone. And a local burglar named Rudy Gaudet, who had been on a burglarizing spree for the past several weeks, broke into our house and raped and murdered her. I was interrogated for 53 hours over four days. They um, lied to me. They screamed at me. They hit me. And they eventually forced me to sign statements that they wrote implicating myself, my boyfriend at the time, and my boss, Patrick Lumumba. I immediately recanted those statements, but I was imprisoned anyway. And eventually what happened was the police finally brought in all of the forensics, all of it pointed to this figure, Rudy Gaudet. And yet, instead of admitting that they had arrested the wrong people, they just altered their theory of the crime to have it be me orchestrating a sex death orgy and basically having these males in my life rape and kill my roommate for me. It's a long, convoluted story, but it's also not really all that different from any kind of wrongful conviction. It's just prosecutorial tunnel vision. There's ego and reputation at play. 
And then there's this issue of how easy it is to vilify women and to just say like, hey, you know, just look at her. There's just something about her that she must be guilty. We'll just figure out how. Mm -hmm. So the reason you're here now is that a movie called Stillwater just came out starring Matt Damon and written and directed by Tom McCarthy, who also directed Spotlight. And McCarthy has said that it was inspired by your case. You know, I was pretty fascinated with the Amanda Knox case back a long time ago. But he's maintained that he took your story in a new direction, a new imagining. I started thinking of the relationship between a father and I just had a daughter. It's from the perspective of the father, the Matt Damon character, whose daughter is held abroad for a murder that they say she was involved in but didn't commit, which is actually not a new imagining at all, right? Yeah. The story he tells is is what you might refer to as the doppelganger version of your story. The mythology version of the story, yeah. They're taking the storyline of the prosecutors and the investigators in Italy. Yeah, in their premise, right? Like, I have not yet seen the film. What I have seen are descriptions of what happens in the film. So instead of it being Italy, it's France. But it's still, young American girl goes to study abroad in Europe. She has a roommate, and they have a sexual relationship. Their relationship sort of disintegrates in an unsavory way. And the American then sort of draws in this other, you know, character, this Rudy Gaudet character to get rid of the roommate. And none of those things are true. None of those things are true. That was absolutely nothing. Yeah. In no way was I aware that Rudy Gaudet was breaking and entering into houses, that he was breaking and entering into my house that night. I had no participation, no incentivizing of Rudy Gaudet's actions. And the way that this story presents it is that, yes, she had not special knowledge. Yes, she was the one who incentivized it. Even if she didn't mean to and she's technically innocent, she's definitely indirectly responsible for her roommate's death. And that's the false narrative that's in the ether of people's minds when they think about this case, where it's like, yes, right. If he were to say like, oh, we're taking the Amanda Knox case as our premise and then we're bringing it into a new direction. What I think he's referring to is the fact that the Amanda Knox's father character is going to be investigating and searching for the killer. And sure, that's a new direction. But what's not a new direction is the premise of the Amanda Knox person being involved and at the very least indirectly responsible and also sexually involved with the Meredith Kircher character because he didn't fictionalize that at all. He took the fiction that was already in existence that continues to be a burden and a obstacle in my ability to reintegrate successfully into the real world. Mm-hmm. So explain to us this, like the process. So you heard about the movie, you wrote this thread. What were you feeling along the way? Well, I found out about the film because the trailer came out. No one ever reached out to me. That's another one of those like, okay, I find out about these kinds of things, not because someone thought, oh, we're going to be talking about Amanda Knox in the promotion of this film. We should probably let her know that, once again, the most traumatic experience of her life is going to be in the headlines and she might, you know, be impacted by that. Like, no, I didn't get that. I just saw the trailer. I saw the very, very clear parallels to my case. I saw the headlines saying this new, you know, Amanda Knox-inspired story is coming out. And my first reaction was, okay, here's another one, because this is not the first time this has happened. And, you know, to Tom McCarthy's credit, he was not the person who invented 
taking someone else's story and going with it without considering that maybe their consent should or could be a part of the development process of a creative piece. And I actually wrote a Twitter thread prior to this viral one where I basically said, hey, I see that my dad's perspective is being turned into a film. I hope they do it well. I think my dad is a really inspiring person. That said, you know, I don't know because no one <laughs> no one yeah. talked to me. And I'm sure my dad would have had lots of really interesting perspectives and things to say about this portrayal. But, you know, fingers crossed that they do a good job in their imagining. Mm-hmm. And I was disappointed to find that it was not as responsible as I would have hoped and that it was, in fact, further entrenching these very, very um, harmful myths about the case without a second thought in the same way that like reviewers of the film were reviewing the film saying, oh, inspired by the story of the convicted, you know, Amanda Knox. And it's like, that's not the end of the story. I was acquitted. Thank you very much. (laughs) Um, Quite emphatically. I mean, what the Italian Supreme Court ultimately said about Mm -hmm. like the stunning. Yeah, stunning flaws in the investigation. And yeah, so they really pointed out that like there ultimately was no evidence that ever had connected me to the crime in the first place. And that There was a lot of pressure on the authorities from outside that made them make these sweeping decisions about guilt or innocence before Mm -hmm. evidence ever came in. And for this big, like someone who has as much resources and reach as Matt Damon and Tom McCarthy to be just casually reiterating that same problematic mythology without consideration of the consequences to me is... I think an issue that is not just a problem for me, it's an issue that has to go towards who is allowed to tell a story? Why them? And why do they get the resources to tell a story? And should they be asking themselves, well, who has the most at stake when I tell this story? Should I consider reaching out to others who could give me insight on how I could tell the story more responsibly? Yeah. One of the things that I want to emphasize is I do not claim to be the sort of gatekeeper of my own story. I don't think that that's necessarily true. I think that people are allowed to be inspired by other people's stories and to take them in new directions, Mm -hmm. to let their imagination be inspired by other people's stories. There are, in fact, infinite stories to tell. So if you are going to be reaching back to something that is drawing from someone's real life, I think there is a responsibility, a moral responsibility and a human responsibility to understand that person's story from their perspective. Your whole trauma started in 2007. It ultimately ended in 15. The legal trauma (laughs) ended in 2015. Yeah. (laughs) It happened in a different time, right? Yes. It happened pre-Me Too. It happened prior to concern about, you know, sort of more sensitivity around cultural appropriation. I think you mm-hmm. suggested that things like Stillwater, people use your uh, story, is a form of cultural appropriation. So in that regard, I find it really surprising that these filmmakers seem to think old rules apply. Yep. I was like, even if you're just trying to protect yourselves, would you not reach out to Amanda Knox in 2021 America to say, like, how do you feel about this? Yeah. What should we know? Well, and that's the major reason why I decided to speak up about it, because it's like I genuinely do not think that Tom McCarthy and Matt Damon had bad intentions. Right. I think that the problem is that to this day, in most people's minds, 
I'm considered a character. The case and people's idea of me, they've seen in the context of it being a story, a plot device, something in the zeitgeist that we can point to that people recognize, but they forget that there's a human being behind it. Why is that? Well, they're not in a position where they're forced to have to consider that. And I wonder if in the same way that we're finally having some sense of accountability for the way that certain characters are portrayed in these stories and acknowledging that in the past, when we have told the stories of people who are in underprivileged positions, who are Mm -hmm. not being empowered to write their own narratives and be the authors of their own experiences, we've made mistakes. We've overlooked people's humanity in a big way. And it's come at the expense of great groups of people. We have yet to recognize that that same thing is happening on an individual level as well, when those individuals have become, once again, stereotypes in the ether and touchstones in the zeitgeist, but are not recognized as human beings who have perspective and can be the authors of their own experience, if only we would empower them to do that. Like my story really hasn't ever actually been told because people assume that my story is this crime abroad where I'm on trial. And it's like, no, my story is surviving prison and then coming out into a world that thinks it knows who I am. And how do you process that like psychological burden of trying to just exist in a world that is constantly defining you as something that you're not and is telling you you don't get to be the author of your own life. You don't get to be (laughs) you don't get to define who you are. What I have to say is particularly galling is not to tell the story of a woman like you, but to tell the story of a man. Yeah. Well, and here's the thing. Like, I wasn't totally offended by that because I you know what? I do think that my dad's experience of my wrongful conviction is an incredibly harrowing experience and a worthwhile one to tell. And I'm honestly not surprised that Tom McCarthy and Matt Damon were thinking along those terms because that is their immediate source of empathy. They're thinking, oh, as the father of someone like that, what would I do? And how would I be even more badass than the real life version? (laughs) And I'm not surprised that he went out of his way to go to Oklahoma and talk to a bunch of people in Oklahoma to better represent them as characters. Right. Because in their story, the family is from rural Oklahoma instead of Seattle, where you're from. Yes. I'm pulling up your tweet about that. The cherry on top (laughs) of this of this hashtag Stillwater thing. I do love that you refer to it as Stillwater thing. Yeah. Damon McCarthy spent time with and developed empathy for, quote, Oklahoma roughnecks, but didn't think to extend that same effort and empathy to the wrongfully vilified woman they use as a plot device. Right. You thought to do all that effort and extend that empathy to the real people that you are going to be representing, knowing that there were going to be potential consequences to that representation. If you don't do it well, they're not going to feel represented. And that's fantastic. I just wish that that Courtesy had also been extended to myself because there is so much judgment that is already a part of that story. The whole premise of the story is one of judgment over the female character. What's sort of curious to me is it's not like I disappeared into the ether and I became this person who was off the grid and no one could reach out to me. I've actually been quite vocal about how my story has been stolen and how women's stories have been stolen and how women in particular have been sold as cardboard characters in morality plays that other people are designing and profiting off of. Right. I've been very vocal yeah, about that. <laughs> waiting to be heard. <laughs> and I did kind the Scarlet Letter reports where I interviewed other women who have been vilified in the media. Like, 
this is not something that is new to me. And I actually have a deep sense of perspective about that. And I would have loved the opportunity to develop that story with them. I wish that people understood and talked about this case and used the appropriate words to talk about this case that actually represent reality. This is the murder of Meredith Kircher by Rudy Gaudet. And Amanda Knox has nothing to do with that. (laughs) Like if the Italian authorities had been competent, you would have never have heard of me. And that's ultimately the tragedy of this case is that my name came to represent this tragic series of events that had nothing to do with me. All right, we have to take a quick break from this incredible conversation. But when we get back, I want to talk to Amanda Knox about what Matt Damon and Tom McCarthy might have learned if they had asked for her perspective for their new movie and where she feels like her story stands in the larger conversation about criminal justice. That's after the break on Just Something About Her. Welcome back to Just Something About Her with journalist and activist Amanda Knox. Amanda, you were just telling us how the new Matt Damon movie, Stillwater, is said to be based on your life, though it insinuates that the character representing you was involved in a crime that you were not. And they took that liberty without consulting you on your perspective. What would we have learned if they had consulted you? Well, one, that this can happen to anyone is one of the big things that is an important factor. I came from a world where the criminal justice system was such a foreign entity to me. It was something out that was, it was a thing that had to do with bad people and it had nothing to do with me. So I never had to think about it. And having gone through the system myself and becoming exposed to people who had done horrible things and had made mistakes and yet recognizing their humanity by living side by side with them for years at a time, realizing that their mistakes are in the context of a society that is not supporting a lot of people to be their best selves and to have good choices to make in any given moment. That was a huge revelation that we are all sort of implicated in the crimes and the things that happen in our society. We all have a stake in it, so we should all be a participant in it. But furthermore, then coming home and realizing that the life that I felt like I deserved to live, going back to being anonymous student, Amanda Knox, going to school for poetry and, and language studies, that life no longer existed for me anymore. And having to rediscover what kind of life that I could live, especially now that I had this new perspective and one that put me into contact with people that I never would have been in contact with, people who had spent 40 years in prison for crimes that they didn't commit, people who grew up in circumstances so different than me. That was a tremendously emotional and powerful experience because it makes me feel like I am very often a bridge between very different worlds where people who have been disenfranchised and taken advantage of and churned through the criminal justice system, people who don't usually look like me are the people who I actually have most in common with. As we're talking about this, I'll note that black people are seven times more likely to be wrongfully convicted than white people. The biases and prejudice against black men in the criminal justice system are different from what you experienced. The problem for them can often be they're not thrust, their case is not thrust into the spotlight, right? Exactly. They're swept under the rug. They they also are victims of stereotypes where there is just this figure of the criminal black man. You know, that lens is just cast upon them and, and colors everything about the evidence in their case. And prosecutors are able to cast that lens with impunity. 
And I think the thing that sort of occurs to me is it is a tragedy that those stories are swept under rug and those lives are swept under the rug and often forgotten. And it takes 10 times. It's there's no mistake that it took 10 times as long to get a lot of black men out of prison than it took to get me out of prison. I never asked for the right. spotlight. Right. Like, if anything, the spotlight was thrust upon me by really unscrupulous <laughs> police and media. And I had a choice when I came out. I could either try to disappear, try and fail because ultimately I tried a little bit and it didn't really work. Or I could try to turn this lens upon itself and say, hey, not only am I going to redefine this narrative that has been written about me, but I'm also going to inform you in the process of how this narrative is being rewritten in other individual lives over and over and over again. And we should, especially as storytellers, like I've been, you know, calling out the media and calling out the criminal justice system for a long time. But also I want to call out creatives. I want to call out storytellers, people who feel like they're safe behind the inspired by and fictionalized. But they're not because that safety is not extended to me. I am still bearing a cost by how they decide to tell a story that is inspired by my story in the same way that anyone who has a story that is told in the true crime genre, yeah. and especially when it is reimagined and uh, in, in, in used as like with recreations. It's such a big thing right now, too. Yeah. That is in the culture, true crimes, true crime story. As you're talking, I'm processing, thinking, I'm sure it's a lot of hard work since you were released in 2011. Is that right? I was released in 2011, right. fully acquitted in 2015. And yeah, like it's taken a long time for me to process. Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> and to understand like where my case stands in this overall picture of wrongful convictions and the criminal justice system in general, what is working, what is not working, why, like the question that's plagued me since the minute I was arrested was why is this happening to me? Yeah. And the reason for the why can't just be you know, pinned down to one individual actor. If anything, we are all part of a system that is entrenched in a kind of mistaken thinking that we need to be better equipped to address head on and not, you know, just assume that the system works all the time <laughs> because it right. doesn't. Particularly with the criminal justice system, there's a sense, you know, it's like one thing that we can be certain of, like, oh, that person was convicted, therefore they mm -hmm. definitely did it. And we, you know, it goes through this process, but you don't appreciate how all of these things, the bias in the media, mm -hmm. you know, political bias in terms of how we view people, bias in the system and, you know, bias in the courtroom all plays into this. I think it was in the Atlantic piece where you said that you were con legally considered to be a public figure. Mm -hmm. People don't know this, but I, I mean, I know this because... When I object to things that are written about people I work for, mm -hmm. this is like a legal term. If you're a public mm -hmm. figure, you like entered this different status where you don't have the rights in terms of what is said or written about you as other right. people would and be able to like maybe sue for libel or something. Right. And if someone even does print something false about you, it's not enough that they printed something false about you. You have to prove malicious intent. So like the whole discovery of the legal loopholes that people have when misrepresenting you and misappropriating you is amazing. <laughs> I watched the documentary that you participated in that's on Netflix where they, you know, they, they interview the investigators, prosecutors. And it was disappointing in some, when I watched this documentary, which is, I thought was really good. Some of the American interviews. Chris Cuomo. Wow. Were you into deviant sex? Insensitive question. But hey, we got to get to what it is. This fuels the doubt. 
Were you into that kind of experimentation? No. Oh, yeah. To be fair to Chris Cuomo, like he sort of warned me going into it, like, hey, I'm going to be hard on you because no, I'm going to no, be like. No, no, no. Okay. Like, that's not fair. It's not fair. It's bullshit to be saying off camera, off camera, be all nice and say, oh, hey, I'm going to be tough on you. Yeah. And well, then yeah. like buy into all the bullshit tropes. Yeah. And it wasn't just Chris Cuomo, right? It was Diane Sawyer. Diane too. Sawyer. Yeah. Again, you can see that this does not look like grief, does not read as grief. I think everyone's reaction to something horrible is different. Why did you talk to them? Why did you talk to the American <laughs> press? Was it, was it a hope to like just? I mean, you know, it was a hope to be heard. Right. So walking Waiting into that situation, heard. I was trying to be heard. And what I discovered was that and this is, again, what sort of got me into journalism in the first place is being on the other side of those kinds of interviews and realizing, oh, I'm walking into a conversation where this is not a conversation at all. This is a story that has been pre-scripted by this person who is sitting in front of me who knows exactly what questions they're going to ask me and knows exactly what story they want to tell before they've even talked to me. And they're just looking for the sound bites that are going to go along with the story that they've already decided to tell. That's what's unfortunate. And when I am talking to someone who is telling me their story, I always try to remember that this is not my story to tell. Therefore, I have to be willing to change my mind about what this story even is based upon what the person is telling me about their experience. And also, there are some questions like I love this excuse that journalists has. Well, I just had to ask you the question because oh, that's yeah. what people are saying. And it's like, no, you don't. Actually, if there's no reason like for you to ask me a question about whether or not I'm into deviant sexuality, like you don't have to ask me that question because it is irrelevant. It has nothing to do with anything. It is just scandalous. It's just scandal mongering. And it doesn't mean that you're less of a journalist for not buying into that. So, yeah. no, like, you don't have to ask me that question. That's something that I've learned over the course of this experience, because at oh, the time I did not yes. know that. <laughs> I didn't know. It's like, oh, well, they're just doing their jobs. It's like, well, get a different job or do your job differently because it's actually not it's also not serving anyone well. Yeah, so, it's not in the public interest for people to have any sort of insight into whether or not I'm a deviant sex addict. Like that has nothing to do with the case whatsoever. Also, there's no evidence of that. And also, even if I were, it wouldn't have mattered. Like I could have been a professional dominatrix and it should not have mattered. Right. <laughs> like, it has Still nothing to do. It involved you in this murder that someone else committed. Exactly. Have you heard the pedestal effect no. of women? So this is interesting. Mm -hmm. Behold women in high regard. We hold their moral virtue in high regard, right? So that it's like sort of a, it's not an advantage, but it's something good that people think about women so that they're on this pedestal. But right. once they get knocked off the pedestal or perceived as having done something that is not in line with what we expect of women, they are knocked off the pedestal and then they fall really far. And then we are constantly yeah. suspicious of them and looking for, you know, evidence that they are to be disrespected, maligned, deviant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that that sort of is similar to that virgin whore, you know, dichotomy. Yes. You're either mm -hmm. one or the other. Mm -hmm. And if, if right. you're not one, then you necessarily are the opposite. And it's unfortunate that it's such a black and white vision of femininity. I feel like men are allowed more of a spectrum of personality, whereas yeah. 
like you say, it's either one or the other when you're a woman. And as soon as someone tries to knock you down, like good luck ever getting on that pedestal again, because you have to be perfect. Yes, we do. I do wonder, though, aside from some of those journalists we just mentioned, did you feel supported by everyday Americans? Because I remember every friggin' day I would wake up to Amanda Knox News and it was just so clear to me, this poor woman, girl, basically, you were so young. I just couldn't believe how out of control it got, how it just seemed so obviously wrong. I worked at the White House at the time. I was like, can we not just, <laughs> can we not just bust in somehow and like <laughs> save this girl and just get her. Can we not use some means of diplomacy here to like, you know, this country has just decided they're going to have a vendetta against her. And I would see how Italian audiences react and be thrilled when you were convicted and devastated when you were acquitted. And I was just like, oh my, I'm a little more sophisticated about gender bias now than I was then. But even then it was so obvious to me that you were innocent. Did you feel any support from America? Did you know how people back here felt? So it's interesting because there was a political charge to this case as well. Like I remember yeah. at a certain point, my prosecutor in court was like making his final you know, statement to the court. And he was like, you really should convict this person basically to say just to show the Americans that they can't push us around. Yeah. As if the Americans were pushing them around, were like walking into the courtroom and telling them what's what. And I can't tell you how many times I fantasized about, you know, some amazing SEAL team (laughs) helicoptering in. SEAL Team 6, stop by Italy on your way way back from that Bin Laden raid. (laughs) Yes. But at the same time, my access to what the American government was able to offer me in terms of support was from the American embassy. And they came to visit me about every six months where they asked me, hey, as far as you know, are your human rights being violated? There's not a lot we can do at this point because we have to let the judicial system play out. And of course, the judicial system in Italy can play out over years because... Or eight in your case. Yeah. Yeah. Their trials go for a very long time. But like, again, they can't just, you know, storm the castle and rescue the damsel in distress. Like, I would have taken that. I would have been a damsel in that moment. (laughs) Hey, Amanda, you know where something like that might happen, where a jail actually gets stormed and SEAL Team 6 comes in and a hero who maybe looks like Matt Damon comes in (laughs) (laughs) and rescues the poor young American woman who's been wrongfully accused? Yeah, it sounds like a great plot for a Matt Damon movie. It does. (laughs) (sighs) Time for a quick break. We'll be right back with Amanda Knox on Just Something About Her. Welcome back to Just Something About Her with Amanda Knox, writer, journalist, and co-host of her podcast, Labyrinths, where she and her husband interview complex characters about their stories of getting lost and found again. I've listened to some of Labyrinths, and it's really great. I, you know, I will say that you walk the walk in terms of reaching out to people who mm-hmm. you're going to talk about, because Malcolm Gladwell had a chapter about you in a book, and you and your husband interviewed him for uh, for the podcast. Mm-hmm. It's called Labyrinths. Explain it. Tell us like what you've really what you feel like some of the things that you've learned from it. So. One of the big things that happened to me when I first came home was I had this really great encounter with a girl in my poetry class. I went to poetry class and I connected a a lot with this girl. We just were really digging each other's poetry to the extent that we started meeting each other outside of class at cafes and just to, you know, 
talk artsy, girly stuff. And mm-hmm. one day she came to the cafe and she was like, oh, my God, you're Amanda Knox. Oh, my God. And I was like, oh, no, you Googled me like this is the end of our friendship. What is she going to think? And she was like, no, 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 don't worry. Don't misunderstand. I was gang raped when I was a teenager. And what you are talking about, like the feeling of being wrongfully convicted that you're talking about in your poetry, that feels like how disempowered and how overwhelmed, how much of an object I felt like when that was happening to me. And that really clicked in my brain that you don't have to be wrongly convicted to understand what it feels like to be wrongly convicted. And I'm interested in all these experiences where people have things happen to them that are out of their control, that they feel like they have lost their sense of agency and voice in the process of this thing happening to them. And how do you navigate that experience when the thing that you are experiencing is so overwhelming and so much bigger than you? Because there are no guarantees. Like I could be in a prison cell right now. Like that is something that could have happened to me were it not for like the incredible efforts of people who came to support me. And sometimes there aren't happy endings to these stories. And the agency that that person who was stripped of their agency, the only thing that they have left is how do they existentially and mentally and psychologically understand and draw meaning from their experience. That is interesting to me. These are the stories that I'm really interested in telling. And, you know, the most recent ones that I've been telling are stories about that seem as far away from wrongful conviction as you could possibly get. Stories of infertility. Mm hmm. And you tell your own story a lot about that. Congratulations. I'm Thank you. Thank you so, so much. I'm excited to hear that, that it's worked <laughs> out. You've had a baby on the way. It's been, you know, a lot of trauma, disappointment. It's been a labyrinthine journey because yeah. I went into it having a, a whole set of expectations and having those expectations reversed and suddenly feeling like I had no control and no power over the situation that was so important to me such an existential part of our existence as people who like once you decide that you want to become a parent you don't stop being a parent in your brain even if you don't have a kid like this is something that is a part of you i could talk to people who spent a decade trying to become a parent and some of them didn't make it and how do you process that experience of trying and failing and trying and failing if anything it resonated with me as this feeling of existential crisis of of feeling like you don't have control over your own life and that you have to reprocess who you think you are given what life has handed you. That is very much in the spirit of labyrinths. (laughs) So well said that I had not considered that once you make the decision to become a parent, you are. Yeah. And it's something that's been kept in the dark, right? Like some Mm -hmm. of the women who reached out to me said that they didn't even tell their parents about what their struggles were because it felt like they were supposed to go through it alone. And there was also this like fear that if they talked about it aloud, that they would be blamed, first of all, the women, because it's happening in their body. So it must be their fault. Right. And that because it's so existential and so personal that they were anticipating that other people just wouldn't be able to appreciate it and wouldn't be able to know what to say. And honestly, like even I to this day don't know exactly what to say in response to someone's tragedy like that. In a similar way that like, you know, people struggle to 
talk to me about what it felt like to be wrongfully convicted. Like, hey, write a letter. How's your day? Yeah. <laughs> like, what do you say? Um, you, yeah, you just you acknowledge yeah. you just acknowledge that it's there and you don't shy away from another person's raw human emotion. That was ultimately my goal was in the process of like hearing other people's stories. That was cathartic for me because I felt less alone. But it was also a kind of reckoning and trying to give back to what they had been giving me, which was I want to give you a voice that matters. It matters because you are the one who has the most at stake in this story and you should be allowed to tell it. Tell us about the kind of work that you're doing on behalf of those who have been wrongfully convicted and where are good sources of information for people to learn more about it? Absolutely. So, of course, the Innocence Project, every state in the country actually has its Mm. own Innocence Project or Innocence Project-like project where people are actively working to overturn wrongful convictions. And that is such important work because usually what happens is a person gets convicted and suddenly all of the resources that they have a right to disappear and they are alone trying to overturn their wrongful conviction by themselves and they need support. They need someone on the outside who is going to be gathering funds like to recheck that DNA that they weren't able to check, you know, 20 years ago. Right. So all of these groups are incredibly important. And I always try to point people in their direction because there are a million ways that you can support them. Like one of the things I would love people to be more aware of is when you are a jury member, inform yourself going into that experience of what constitutes good evidence and not good evidence, what constitutes bias in terms of witness tampering and interrogation techniques, like all of these things come into play. That is great advice. That is great practical actionable advice that would have a make a huge difference. Huge difference. Also, because no one is ever going to put me on a jury. I wish they would. (laughs) (laughs) But I just am a little too informed. So I just want everyone else to be informed. But in the meantime, I'm also on the board of the Frederick Douglass Project for Justice, which basically is trying to put people who are not in prison in direct communication and direct contact with people who are in prison, whether they are guilty or not. And that is because a lot of damage occurs on the societal level when we feel like we're just really fundamentally different kinds of people, the people who stay out of prison and the people who end up in prison. And really, we need to make those human connections more so we can better understand what leads people to commit the crimes that bring them into prison in the first place? And how can we all be better connected and better supported so that we can have a safer society for everyone? That is fantastic. Okay, now I'm really going to let you go, but I just want to know, how is your family? Because, you know, it seems like you and your husband are, you know, doing well. You have a baby on the way. How, Yeah. You, had, you know, your mom, dad, you had siblings. I know it was like traumatic for everyone going through this. How is everyone doing? Thank you for asking that. And honestly, that's one of the reasons why this whole Steelwater thing is a little bit sad for me, because like it's the first time that I've seen someone sort of actively engage with the network of people that are impacted by a wrongful conviction. It's not just the person who finds themselves accused, but everyone around them who cares about them and whose lives get put on hold and whose identities also get called into question because of the accusation that is put out there in the world. My family is doing great. You know, we're moving on. Um, We're doing our best to live our lives regardless of what people say about it. And I feel really lucky because ultimately at the end of the day, I don't have to engage with the Foxy Noxy persona. I come home to my husband and my family and my cats and they know who I am. 
And now here's the big difference between 2007 to 11, Amanda Knox and Amanda Knox in 2021. You can tell your own story. You do it every day. I can. And my my biggest concern moving forward, especially with my pregnancy, is how can I change the world to be a better place so that my eventual child is not going to suffer the same kinds of treatment that I did? You know, my husband has been talked about in the media. My husband has had bloody knives photoshopped into photos of him. Like these are things that I do not wish upon my child and I want to protect them as much as possible. And I'm hoping that by starting a conversation about how other people's lives are consumed for content, I can call into question the automatic assumption that my child's head is going to have a bounty on it for paparazzi and my child's life does not belong to anyone but his or herself. So I really, really do. I'm very grateful to be here and sharing these thoughts with you. And I'm grateful that you find value in them. So thank you. Yeah. And just delightful to meet you. (laughs) So good to meet you. Very nice to meet you. Please stay in touch. Sari, you there? Yes, I am. And I feel like we should have a segment at the end of these episodes called the non-apology apology for men. Um, Because since we recorded this episode, which was on Friday, August 6th, Tom McCarthy said about Amanda Knox speaking up about this film, that it's complete fiction, that it's his style to hear stories and pick up ideas from here and there and then mix them all together. And that they did interview incarcerated people and people going through addiction to make sure to honor certain storylines. And he wraps this all in the neat protection of, you know, well, Amanda Knox hasn't ever seen the film. Maybe she should. And now that I'm actually recounting um, what he said, I'm realizing that it isn't an apology at all. There was no apology in there. (laughs) He doesn't even say, like, I'm sorry if she was offended. (laughs) Right, exactly. And Amanda made a really compelling Twitter thread again in response, basically saying to Tom, like, you and everyone else is explicitly saying it's based on my life. And you didn't do the decency of telling me ahead of time that my trauma was going to be used for entertainment and pop up out of the blue without me knowing in coverage on headlines. And it's still reinforcing a false and harmful narrative of her story. Also, her zinger at the end is like, "Uh, yeah, I haven't seen Stillwater and I have no interest in watching my trauma unfold over a bag of popcorn. Oh my God, amazing. But it's like, come on, man, you use her in the marketing. Like you say, that's what this is. Totally. It just reminds me of so many other women in the media. And I think that's the importance of all this. And what she's trying to do is speak up against, you know, how the media has treated women like Britney Spears. Right. It's just like this constant fight for women to be able to have agency over their own stories, their own lives and their own images even, you know, I mean, Britney Spears is out there performing, not able to receive any profit from that. Other people are profiting off of that. The fact that we're like shocked that this happened in 2021 actually isn't shocking. If you look at all the data points that are still (laughs) out there. Right, right, right. In an article that Amanda wrote for The Atlantic, she equates calling this the Amanda Knox saga to calling it the Monica Lewinsky saga, which, you know, uh, Monica has like spoken up clearly for years, like you should call that the Clinton scandal. Yeah. I just want to leave people with how Amanda closed her Atlantic essay about her newfound purpose in life. She ended it by saying, I know how wrong people were about me, and I don't ever want to be that wrong about another person. The world is not filled with monsters and heroes. It's filled with people, and people are extraordinarily complex. Yeah. It's a minder not to judge a woman because there's just something about her that Mm -hmm. strikes you as odd, or there's just something about her that you don't like. 
This is Just Something About Her, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thank you to Amanda Knox for being on the show. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating in the Apple Podcasts app. I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri. D. Scott Carroll engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams handles research. Stephanie Stender is our post producer. Sari Soffer is our producer. And Christian Castro-Russell is our executive producer. 